It is good to be gathered in the house of God once again. Is your hard hearts filled with thankfulness after this week? I treasure these, these times of the year when we're reminded to be thankful. And as Demetrius then led us in some Christmas songs, Christmas is right around the corner when we are reminded of Christ and his entrance to earth as a human, Jesus. I trust this can be a, a time in, of, of the year where we're filled with thankfulness and awe of what Christ has done for us. This morning, I've entitled the message, My Father's Business. And I'm going to jump ahead. I know we're getting close to Christmas, but jump ahead past Christmas, past Jesus' birth, to when Jesus was 12 years old. Do you remember a little trip that they took? Maybe it was more than a little trip. A couple days' journey into Jerusalem. And as they're there celebrating the feast at the time, they went to leave, and like was customary, they traveled with other people. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus, along with a company of people, went to leave Jerusalem. And I find it intriguing, uh, the parenting model that Joseph and Mary portrayed here. They said, oh, Jesus must be with one of his friends. Maybe it's because Jesus was a perfect child. They just never had problems before. They headed, out, they headed home, and they're a couple days down the road, and wait, Jesus isn't in the group. So they turn around, and they head back to town, frantically looking for Jesus. Where did they find him? In the temple. What was Jesus' response? Now, before we get to Jesus' response, he was sitting in the temple talking with the bigwigs, the priests, conversing with adults. And he was astounding the adults. They were amazed at what he was talking, what he was saying. And Mary was like, Jesus, what do you think you're doing? What was Jesus' response? Uh, Mom, don't you understand? I'm about my father's business. How do you think Mary responded to that? The next verse says they didn't even understand what he was saying. What do you mean, Jesus, a 12-year-old boy? I'm about my father's business. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Now we skip forward many years into Jesus' ministry. He is now probably in his 30s. He starts his ministry with his disciples, calling disciples to himself. And John chapter 4, we pick up at the woman at the well. They're traveling along and providentially planned. They meet up with the lady at the well, the Samaritan woman. Jesus conversed with him, with her. And in the meantime, the disciples get hungry, so they go into town to get food. Jumping down to verse 34. Uh, actually, verse 30. They went into the city and they came unto him. And I picture them carrying bundles of food. Verse 31. In the mean, while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. So they come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, we got your food. Can you picture the love on his face as he responds? He says unto them, I have meat to eat that you, you know not of. 
And the disciples look at each other in the next verse, uh, who brought him meat? And again, we see similar words in verse 34, which is where I pull my title from. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Again, he says to his disciples, disciples, there's so much more to life. I'm about my father's business. He sent me on a mission, and I'm focused on that mission. And I'm going to finish that work. Jesus was about his father's business. My question I pose this morning, are you about your father's business? Can you, when people come up to you, can you answer, ah, I'm about God's business. I'm doing God's will. Could you say that this morning? Back when I was a little tyke, about seven years old, we lived in Grenada. And one afternoon, my, wife, my mom was in the kitchen cooking something, and she was missing a key ingredient to what she was preparing. The local shop did not have what she needed. We had to go to town. And I know dad was away for the day, so it was just mom and the children, and the only way in was public transportation. So she said, hey, Zach, would you want to head into town? Seven-year-old boy says, sure, mom, I got this. Well, we called a neighbor friend named Victor, and mom gave me money, and she told me exactly which shop and which ingredient to get. She tasked me with that mission. Met up with my friend Victor, and he got me on the public bus. We rode into town. He had uh, other things to do for the day, so he pointed me to the shop, and I headed there. Went to the shop, and I knew exactly what to get. Went to the cashier, proudly gave my money, got my change back, and now the question was getting home. Oh, yeah, I know where to go. So I knew exactly the, the place where all the buses meet up, and I was familiar enough. I knew which line went up to Labyrinth. So climbed in one of the buses, and they saw I, I was a little tight, so they jammed me in the back seat, smashed between a whole bunch of adults, and we headed home. As we were getting close to home, I remembered, ah, I need to knock on the door, or on the side of the bus, so the conductor knows where to let me off. I was focused on this mission. So as we were coming up, I, I had my hand up, ready to go, because I had to reach around some adults. And even before the bus got to the outside our house, it already started slowing down, because they knew who I was, and they knew where I needed to go. But I raised my hand up, I knocked on the bus, we pulled over, I jumped out, and I walked proudly into my mom and delivered her her ingredients to finish cooking her meal. I remember specific images of that day because my mom gave me a mission and I was focused on that mission. I was not sidetracked. I, I don't remember meeting anybody that I knew, but if I did, I'm pretty sure I would have stayed focused on the mission because this was a sense of responsibility that my mom placed on me. I was about my mom's business there. She sent me on a job to do, and I was focused on it. In that case, it was my mom's business I was focused on. The question I pose now is, what is your father's business for you? 
Or maybe I, we could phrase it, what is God's will for you? Can you know? How do you know? If somebody asks you this morning, what does God want you to do? Or what are you doing with your life? How would you respond? Am I about my father's business? This morning, I want us to see our place in God's story. So we choose the important over the urgent. And this is a regurgitation, I guess you could say, of some things I've been thinking about recently. I was uh, privileged to sit in a session or two a couple weeks ago, and a lot of this content that I'm sharing this morning is not my own, but is an adaption of uh, other individuals. So I bring you it this morning, and I invite you to see our place in God's story. To do that, we're gonna give a we're gonna take a step back and a quick overview of pretty much history of God's story in the world. Before we do that, I ask the question, can we know our Father's business? Does God have a will for us? And to do that, I want to look at three words this morning. So picture this circle as the world, a whole. God has a vision for the world, a big vision. And what is that? That all men would know him. That is his vision for the world, that all men would know him. And that's a task he gave his disciples when he left. Go spread the news. So that's the vision, God's big vision for the world. Maybe this, the triangle in the middle is symbolizing that. Then out of that vision comes a mission. And this is symbolic of, what's the mission here at Myerstown? Or what's the mission at Shenandoah, Waterworks? You name it, all around the world there's organizations, missions, who are focused on a part of God's vision of bringing truth to the world. That gives us a sense of, wow, I'm involved in something bigger. But to enable this mission to happen, what must there be? A servant. A little slice of the pie of the mission, there needs to be a servant who enables that mission to happen. So if we think about God's vision, big picture for the world of all men to know him, that's the big vision. He gives groups of people a mission to focus on, and that mission is enabled by us as servants. So our place in God's story, where do we fit in? And this morning, I'm going to use a diagram to, uh, to walk through this story of the Bible. You will find papers in your songbook holders. You're welcome to pull those out. There should be some for the children. So children, see if you can add some drawings as we go along. See if you can be a better artist than myself. I should really have Ruthie up here uh, drawing these symbols for me. She's the artistic one. But I trust as we walk through here, my goal is to get a glimpse of God's story of the past. And if you're out running out of papers, I do have some extra ones on the mailboxes in the back. So feel free to grab one if you need an extra one. And as we look at God's story in the Bible, we really see an overarching theme of redemption. 
Therefore, the title of this is A Redemption Narrative in Three Acts. So we're kind of, we kind of broke the story down into three segments or acts, you could say. And what is God doing in the world? That's what we want to see and find our place in the story. So back at the beginning of time, God said, I want to make a world. And, how many, and we have the days of creation. To symbolize creation, let's draw a sun. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And he formed everything perfectly in the world. He put the stars, the sun, the moon in their proper places to work in an amazing way. Then he said, I want to make something in my image. And that's when he made humans or mankind. And in the beginning of time, we have a man and a woman. Adam and Eve entered the world. And his plan for them was that they live in the garden, in perfect paradise, in his image, communing with him. And as Lester pointed to in his sermon last uh, Sunday, Satan came to Eve and hath God said, and they chose to go against God's plan. Now we have the connection between God and mankind broken. This is back in the beginning. He kicks them out of the garden, and now does God have to come up with plan B? I don't know if we could call it plan B because God knew beforehand what was coming. So we have man and woman, Adam and Eve, kicked out of the garden. There needs to be a plan of redemption to pull them back to himself. And part of that... Uh, after Adam and Eve went out of the garden, they failed. And humanity was in an awful place, going against God's plan. And so God said, I'm going to destroy all of you, except for Noah. He saved Noah and his family on the ark. They draw a little boat to symbolize the ark. A major point in God's story. He got rid of most of mankind, and he saved Noah, and he said, through Noah, I can now start over. Well, Noah himself messed up. His three sons again fell into a pattern of sin. They got together with the many people that were now populating the earth, and they tried to make a name for themselves at the Tower of Babel. Another key point in the story of the Bible. The Tower of Babel, they try to reach the heaven. They try to be somebody, make a name for themselves. And as we know, God changed their languages and they scattered. So now, is there a hope for a plan of redemption with mankind cho choosing again and again to go against God's plan? What's God going to do now? That's where one man comes into the picture. And in Galatians 3, verse 8, is this verse. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, 
And thee shall all the nations be blessed. And I will make of you a great nation. Another promise we see in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham and says, In you, I'm going to make a great nation. Now remember, this is a man who didn't have any children. What was God's plan going to be? So here we see the start of, I'm going to call it Act 1. And we see a great nation blessing to Abraham. Out of Abraham, a great nation is going to come. So finally, God has a plan to make a name, his name great in mankind. We have the family of Abraham. And he went through a lot of trusting God in his life, having a son at old age. Then God saying, sacrifice him to me. Abraham taking Isaac to the altar. God says, oh no, I have another plan. That is a beautiful story. Time goes on. More generations go on. Isaac, Jacob comes along. And Jacob, out of Jacob comes how many sons? Twelve. Twelve sons. And did you catch the last verse? So remember, this is a great nation. And did you catch the last verse of the lesson today in Ruth? Who did it give credit to for the nation of Israel? Two wives, Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah. He, they did, uh, it didn't say, oh, and back to good old Jacob for raising up a nation. No, through Rachel and Leah. There was a specific plan in the story for making this nation great. And God gives the credits or refers back to two ladies who are part of that. And Ruth enters the picture, and she is also a part of that. It's a beautiful story of how God uses multiple people to make a great nation. So, in our first place, we have a family. And you can draw some uh, stick figures, some people to show the family of Jacob. And maybe below that, put 12 dots to symbolize the 12 tribes, or the 12 sons of Jacob. So now we have the sons of Jacob and Joseph, when seemingly everything went against him in life. He is sent down to Egypt, but it was for a plan to have the, the family of Jacob move to Egypt and live there and grow. So here we have in part two, we have them moving to Egypt, draw some pyramids where they lived in Egypt for many years, and that is where they became a multitude. Finally, God is making his plan really multiply. We're getting closer to the great nation. And remember, in Egypt, Pharaoh started getting worried because the people of Israel was growing to be to an alarming number. It was concerning to Pharaoh. So they are multiplying, getting closer to the great nation that God had promised. But they're in slavery. In part three, we see the leadership of one man, a shepherd named Moses. Beautiful story of how God used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt to the promised land where they, that God had promised to them. Promised the way back to Abraham. 
Back here at Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you land where your great nation is going to live. And to do that, to make all this work, we have the law given to Moses in step four. Now, this nation of Israel didn't have a way to live or how to connect with God, how to live for God. So God gave Moses the law via the Ten Commandments. So we have the law in step four, given as a path for Israelites, the children of Israel, to follow. But in the, in the wilderness, what do they start do, doing? Complaining. So instead of taking a straight shot to the land that God wanted to give them, they took a detour, a winding detour through the desert, where again and again God tried to remind them of his leadership. Through Moses, through uh, Joshua, God showed the children of Israel that he was their leader through the detour. And again, we could stop here and take a look at the, the many things that God, God showed them. In Exodus 14, 16, it says, But Moses, uh, God is speaking to Moses, But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel should go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And the Lord said unto Moses, skipping ahead a couple verses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, that the waters may come again unto the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. Through Moses' life, we see Moses wasn't the one performing Moses was doing what God told him to do, and God was performing the miracles. Here we see a truth in God's story. We can't, but God can. Moses couldn't do it, but God could. And all Moses had to do was simply obey. God was working through Moses. So, continuing on with the story. They detoured. Finally, they enter the land. And we're going to draw a... 12 boxes here to symbolize the 12, again, the 12 tribes of Israel. As they detoured through the wilderness, they got to the land and they settled in. And as they settled in the land, we have the judges. You can put a J up in the one corner to, to show the judges that were over this time that God brought into the, the children of Israel to lead them and to show them the way. Another important person in this time was Ruth who we just got finished talking about. As they entered the land, the judges, Ruth, entered the scene. Again, we're looking at God's story, at what he did to do what? His promise to Abraham was to make a great nation. Then we see again the leadership of a couple individuals, and one of them was Samuel. The prophet Samuel was very instrumental in unifying them. And as Samuel was leading, there was a theocracy. God was in control, but the children of Israel started looking around at their neighbors and said, we want a king like them. And that's when Saul enters the picture. Draw a crown to symbolize Saul, the reign of Saul. So now through Samuel, and then Saul, we have the country, or the nation of Israel, I should say, being unified. That is step number seven. And then, last of all, we reach the peak under the leadership of two kings, David and Solomon. 
David and Solomon, two kings. And at this time, if you look in the story of the children of Israel, this is when the nation of Israel was at its peak. Life was good. God was ready to send his Savior. Or maybe not yet. And as we look at the story in the Bible, as we, we could really be putting in the books of the Bible as we walk through this story, we reach scene two, which is when this country, when the nation of Israel is divided. We have Israel and we have Judah. Israel had 19 kings over 211 years. Judah had 20 kings over 347 years. They're divided. They're fighting against each other. That is when the other countries come in and they go into captivity. And I think in your, your diagram there, we have Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all the different nations around them who came in and captured. And this was a hard time for the children of Israel, again, because they chose to go against God's law that he had given them. Is this a great nation? I don't know. Separated, scattered, divided. Down here, we have prophets. So in the midst of this going into other countries, we have the prophets who come along. One of them is Ezra, who is instrumental in rebuilding the temple. And then we have Nehemiah, who is instrumental in rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. So now in scene three, we have a nation that's being restored. After they were divided and separated, they're being restored. And through this time, we have the prophets who are instrumental in speaking truth into the nation of Israel. And also in this time, we have synagogues. Now you remember the Jews are scattered around. Some of them came back to the, the, their hometown of Jerusalem or their nation, their, where their land was, but many of them were scattered amidst Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So we have synagogues starting here. And an interesting thing about these synagogues is they were seeding the world with the word of God, setting the stage for Act 2, which we're going to talk about in a minute. At this time, when the city is rebuilt, when the temple is rebuilt, and they're back in their homeland, some of them, some of them are scattered, this is when Jesus decides, or God decides, to send Jesus. This great nation that God promised to Abraham is now at a place ready to receive the Messiah. The time has come. And as we transition into... Acts 2, we see now at the top of your, your diagram, we have proclaim salvation. So this great nation promised to Abraham was to provide the Messiah, provide salvation that was to come. And now the goal is to proclaim. And here we have a change of, of the channel. So here in the Old Testament, God used the nation of Israel as the channel to make his name great. God now shifts that channel to the church. And as we look at the world today, we have churches being sent forth. If we go back to the time of Jesus, 
He brought a new way of, of living, the New Testament, put away with the law, and a new way of living by faith in Jesus. You're no longer under the law, Jesus says. And to his disciples, he says, this salvation, I'm the Messiah, go share this with the world. And out of that, the synagogues were a segue into an opportunity for churches to spread truth to the world. Act number two, the church takes Jesus to the world. And we see that in the Great Commission that Jesus told his disciples. We are no longer providing salvation. We are proclaiming salvation through the channel of the church. And then we go to Act 3. Now we're jumping ahead a little bit. What is Act 3 going to be? The return of Christ. And I'm going to read a couple pages out of, I'm into storybooks, children's storybooks right now with the age my, my family is in. The Biggest Story is a book I would recommend. It summarizes the Bible into significant stories and facts that I think children should know and start thinking about. So I'm going to go to the last chapter, which talks about Act 3. And to give you a little, little background, it refers to Jesus as the snake crusher, because Satan is the snake. Therefore, Jesus is going to be the snake crusher. As you can tell, this story is big. In fact, it's the biggest story. It's, familiar, it's a familiar story to some of us. It's, just, it's a true story for all of us. But we haven't seen the end of the story. Not yet. We live in the beginning of the end of the story that we are still in the middle of. We know it's not the end because we haven't made it back to the garden. We get glimpses of the garden here and there in our hearts, in our families, in the church. But anyone who loves the story longs to see the one who's at the center of the story. The snake crusher is coming back to wipe away all the bad guys and wipe away every tear. He's coming to make a new beginning and to finish what he started. He's coming to give us the home we once had and might have forgotten that we lost. So keep waiting. Keep believing. Keep trusting that the story isn't over yet. God's promises never fail and the promised one never disappoints. One day we will see him. One day we will be with him. One day there will be nothing but the best days, day after day after day. And forever and ever, it will be a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. That's Act 3, brothers and sisters. It's coming. It's not here yet. And where this, where this ends, I don't know. We can propose, we can take a guess, but we don't know. That gives us anticipation and excitement for the day that is to come. And so, brothers and sisters, I propose this morning, in the story of God, in a great nation providing the way for salvation, we are now in the stage of Act 2, proclaiming. So again, I go back to my question, are you about your father's business? Are you proclaiming? Do you have... Are you serving humbly in a part of that mission of God's vision for the world that all men would know him? Quick observations as we look at God's story. We have a purpose because God has a plan. 
amidst all the changes and, cho- and choices to go against God's plan, God has redemption through it all. God is the I will God. I will make of you a great nation. We could go through many promises. God grows things. Go to Matthew 1.17. It shows you how many generations each of these acts are. From Abraham to David and so on. 14 generations. So 14, 14, 14 generations in each of these three acts. God grows things over time. And I think I referred to this already, the acorn principle. Acorn is in the ground, and it takes a while for the tree to grow. God is patient. He grows things over time. He's not in a hurry. We can't, but God can. So, we saw God's story. That is a quick run-through. And I challenge you, take some more time to dig into the story, God's big picture. So the question I then pose is, are you about your father's business? Do you know? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Are you a Moses? Are you a Ruth? A Samuel? A Saul? They were part of God's story of making the nation great. So here, what part are you of? It's possible to know. Sometimes it's hard to know. Now, we live in a land of opportunity. What do we pursue? Is it our church? Is it family? Is it going on the mission field? Is it, what is it? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. And here, to to end our time together here this morning, I want to quickly look at important things versus urgent things. Matthew chapter 9. We have Jesus uh, teaching his disciples. In the middle of chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, Actually, starting in at verse 14, John's disciples come to him, and he says, Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? And Jesus spends some time with them talking about why his disciples don't fast like John's disciples did. And then jump down to verse 18 with me. So, get with me the picture here. Jesus is talking to John's disciples and his disciples. A meaningful time of connection, right? Verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hands upon her, and she shall live. This was a custom thing in the day. People coming to Jesus and says, Heal my relative, my family. I know you can. But Jesus is talking to his disciples right now. Isn't that a good thing? A mission that he has? Verse 19, And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And he went along and he healed. He rose to life, this daughter. So Jesus dropped what he was doing in the moment to be focused on that calling. So, every opportunity that comes to us, we should jump up and go. Turn with me now to John 11. John 11, Jesus is ministering in Capernaum, I think. And now there was a certain man named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her mother Martha, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary, which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, 
He whom thou lovest is sick. This was somebody Jesus had a close connection to. Therefore his sister, uh, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, let's get up and go right away. We need to take care of Lazarus. No. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Jesus didn't get up and go right away. And I look at this and say, why? But Jesus had a bigger plan. He understood his father's business was to show the people around something bigger than just healing in this case. Raising to life. And Jesus understood that. So he said no to that opportunity. Or at least wait. And we know later he gets the news that he died. He goes and he raised Lazarus to life. So in that instance, he did not get up and, and run to the calls that was there. Acts chapter 3, we have Peter and John going to the temple to pray. How many of you think going to church is a good thing? Yep. So Peter and John are headed to the temple to pray. And as they're headed there, an important thing to do, who do they meet? A man by the wayside. He said, hey, can you give me some alms? And they took a moment to stop. And they blessed that man, and he was healed. They were headed to church. Brothers and sisters, the point I'm trying to illustrate, as we look at God's story, we need to look for opportunities and ask God to give us a mission. But sometimes that mission can be hard, as we are bombarded with opportunity after opportunity. And our human tendency is to let urgent things control us. So my, my uh, little tool I wanna, that I've been thinking about recently is a quadrant. Somebody asked me this morning if I used a ruler to draw my boxes, and I did. And as we think about this quadrant, we can think about things to do as, as different areas. So we have urgent things, and we have non-urgent things. We have important things, and we have non-important things. So, how do you know what's important and what's not important? That's the question we grapple with a lot. Where's our priorities, right? Do you know that most of the time is spent in this quadrant doing the urgent and important things? Kind of like crises that come up. Or children's needs, family needs, commitments that we make. Why did I ever commit to that? Did you ever ask yourself that? Yep. Uh, work might be another thing. So we spend a lot of time in the urgent, important, life is stressful, life is busy. Most of, majority of our time is spent there. Do you know the next place where we spend most of our time? Is it up here? Unfortunately, it's down here in the not important. In the not important, uh, urgent stuff, maybe some people's requests, some goals, some uh, work projects we want to get done, some meetings, popular activities to do. Or maybe the non-urgent, not important is time wasters, social media, busy work, Pleasant activities, laziness, ah, oh, I deserve a good break. The not important. 
But what I want to pose this morning is if we would spend more time in the non-urgent but important areas, it would bring vision and focus to the things that actually need done. And again, you can't put all requests, all opportunities into this box. But this is something me and my wife have been talking about the past couple weeks is, is it important or is it urgent? If we're spending time in the non-urgent, important areas, that's relationships. That's family time. That's quiet time. Asking God to show us his mission that he wants us to do, the things he wants us to do. That's planning ahead. It's some hobbies and recreation. It's taking, it's slowing down. So my challenge this morning, as we look at God's story, the opportunities that come our way to share Jesus with the world, are you doing that? Are you about your father's business? And just a little tool that, I, that has helped me is ask yourself, is it important? Is it urgent? Am I spending areas or my time in areas of planning, thinking ahead, quiet time, to help me prepare for when life does get urgent and important. Because if we get caught in this circle, it seemingly never ends. Plan ahead, dads. Schedule time for your family. Maybe it's church. And a burden that I want to share with you all, a trend I've seen recently is other activities in life, we get busy, good activities, family, hobbies, whatever it may be, start taking precedent over the important things. And maybe that's church and church services. Dads, where do we prioritize our time? New calendars coming out. Do we go down through and put all, uh, all the things, services, important things in our calendar and say no to other things that come up? Now, don't hear me saying you need to be at every church service. No. But I've seen a trend recently. Where are we spending our time? In the important, or non, important and non-urgent quadrant. Schedule family time. Church. Are you being a part of God's mission for the world? Are you, do you schedule solitude to decipher God's will? To wrap it up. Continually to choose the important over the urgent. How do you decipher what's important and urgent? Or how did Jesus decipher that? He knew his father's business. So my question to you, do you know your father's business? Are you in tune with your father? Do you know what he wants you to do? Being a part of that big mission of taking Jesus to the world. View yourself as a servant, a part of a mission to fill God's vision for the world. What was the great commission that Jesus left with his disciples? Go teach in Matthew. Mark 16, go preach. Luke 24, ye are witnesses. Acts 1, you are witnesses of me. So, brothers and sisters, as we go back on the diagram to Jesus, the Messiah has come. Let's go and proclaim that. We're not to live a life of ease. We are to live a life of spreading God's word. How are you going to do that? This morning, I trust that we can see our place in God's story. Choose the important over the urgent. Let's all stand for a closing prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. As we look back at your story, 
as it unfolded over time. You promised a great nation as a plan to provide salvation or the Savior. And the Savior has come. The Messiah has come. And all we have to do is by faith accept your plan of redemption. And I pray that as we receive, after we receive that wonderful gift of salvation, may we be a part of your mission to take your name to the world. Dear God, show us specific areas that we can be a part of that. Help us to focus on the important things over the urgent. And may we be soldiers in your kingdom. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Myerstown. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house. Take us as we go from here. Shower us with your blessings. In your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.